Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. So Lydia, it happened. Yay, the justices released their much-anticipated ethics code on Monday, November 13th. Woohoo! That's right, Kimberly. Uh, a few of the justices have been teasing the possibility of a Supreme Court-specific code for a while now, but I still wasn't sure if we'd really, you know, get one. Uh, so now that it's out, uh, everyone's happy, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, n- no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I gotta say, I wasn't super surprised by that reaction. You know, I mean, we're going to get into this with our guests a little bit, but I don't think anyone really thought that the court's critics were going to be appeased by the kinds of ethics code that we saw them teasing. Yeah, I, I saw a lot of the commentary that a big sticking point has been the enforcement mechanism here in this code. So we're going to get into that with our guest. Or lack of enforcement mechanism. <laughs> oh, that's true. Lack of enforcement. So let's get to our guest. Uh, here to dissect it all is Jennifer Ayern, who serves as senior counsel for the Brennan Center's Judiciary Program. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for joining us. Um, So can you remind listeners um, how we got here? You know, why is the court adopting a code after more than 230 years of operation? I think the court is adopting a code right now because it was feeling the pressure, essentially, from the public that something is not quite right with what's going on with ethics at the court. And um, they felt the need to do something to reassure the public that, in fact, they're on top of it. Mm. So, Jennifer, what was the biggest thing that stood out to you about the code that the justices issued on Monday? I think the biggest thing that stood out to me was really the way they described the code, which was that this is nothing new. It felt fundamentally as though what they thought was going on was that people just didn't understand what they were doing. And so they wanted to put the code together as a way to explain to people that, in fact, this is what we're doing. (laughs) Um, And so I think the thing that seems the most important to me for folks to understand is that in a lot of important ways, this doesn't really change anything about how ethics at the court are operating. And that is frankly troubling. Yeah, I got a sense of that too in the beginning, you know, that statement that they put out with the code, it really had a kind of a tone of like, we've been doing this already, but fine, here you go, you know, happy now kind of um, uh, tone to that. Uh, But I'm curious, uh, you know, the code as itself, you know, digging into it, it it tracks very closely with what the lower court judges have to follow. uh, But there are some differences, particularly when it comes to recusals. And so we were just wondering, can you talk about uh, this rule of necessity that's mentioned and, and how that's reflected in the code? Yeah, I think that is probably the biggest significant difference between what the code is for the justices and what the code is for other judges. And frankly, I think it's an indicator that the justices are still holding themselves to a lower standard than lower court judges are holding themselves to when it comes to ethics. And I think that's problematic. But I will say the rule of necessity in general is a rule that courts have developed over the years essentially to respond to circumstances where the ethics rules might suggest that the, or even require that a judge recuse themselves from a case. But if the judge did that, it would be a big problem. Usually you're talking about a situation where, for example, there would not be another judge available (laughs) to actually decide the case. So if you could imagine, for example, a statute where the Congress cuts the pay of all federal judges, 
just cuts it. And then someone challenges that statute in court. The judge in that case, whoever it gets assigned to, would have a financial interest in the case, right? And so you would assume to some degree that a recusal would be appropriate because they have a financial interest in the decision. But in that particular situation, there's no judge who could step in who would not have a financial interest. And so the rule of necessity is essentially a circumstance where the judge judge can say, in this circumstance, I'm not going to recuse because justice otherwise requires it, essentially. And so those are the kinds of situations and cases where you see the rule of necessity being applied. What the justices have done is really import the rule of necessity generally, but also suggest a lot of different circumstances in which they think it should apply to them specially. Um, And I think those are very different from how we have seen the rule of necessity apply to other judges. Yeah. So, you know, this is one question that I have is just how big of the problem this rule of necessity or duty to sit, as it's otherwise called, really is at the Supreme Court. The commentary in particular really seems just to suggest that having all nine justices hear every case is really imperative um, for it to be able to carry out its job of administering justice. And I'm just wondering, is that true? And is it as big of a deal as the commentary seems to suggest? I think it's hard to imagine that it is as big a deal as the commentary seems to suggest. We certainly see justices recusing themselves not infrequently for reasons that are pretty well established if they worked, you know, for example, um, Justice Kagan has recused in a lot of cases because she was the Solicitor General of the United States before she became a justice and worked on a lot of cases that came before her. We've seen other justices recuse for other reasons and including financial interests. And so Clearly, there is to some degree a comfort with the idea that recusal is appropriate and the court can moves forward with those cases when those justices don't participate. So on one hand, you see them talking about this as though it is a dire, dire thing. Um, and, you know, I suppose that You could imagine a situation where recusal became so common that it got in the way in a major way of the court doing its work. But it is hard to imagine, given what we have seen and what these rules say, that recusal could ever become so common that it really became a problem in that way, um, because those the circumstances in which recusal is required are relatively limited. I think it's hard to imagine that recusal is as big of a problem as the justices painted to be in the commentary. Right. I've heard others uh, comment that kind of, you know, this duty to sit is most imperative in these hotly contested cases where the opinion might come down to a 5-4 ruling or even 6-3. And so I'm wondering, is that, do you agree that that's when kind of the duty to, to sit is imperative? And then my other question is, if that's the case, isn't it important in those instances for the court to really be looking impartial then? Right. I mean, not just to be looking impartial, but to actually be impartial, right? I mean, I I think there's a couple of things going on here. I mean, one is the, okay, okay, let's imagine a universe in which two justices recuse from a case and suddenly we have seven justices on the bench. Now, the court seems to suggest that you know, a four to three opinion would somehow be less powerful and would be a real problem in its ability to provide a nationwide rule, I think they say, or, you know, address this nationwide issue. I'm not really sure that that's the case. I can understand suggesting that there's some value to having that level of um, sort of 
a majority and a number of justices who have weighed in on this and this is what they think and that being important. But I don't think it is a magic wand to saying, you know, this is this is the most important thing is to have five justices votes to be able to to overrule a lower court. And frankly, you would in this circumstance have to weigh that against what is the impact of having a justice who should otherwise not be participating in the case on how the public views that rule, how other courts look at that ruling and how legitimate, you know, ultimately that ruling is decided to be. And I don't think it's an obvious weighing of the balance between those two things. And frankly, I don't think that the way that the rule has been implemented in the code of conduct suggests that the court has taken that weighing very seriously. And it certainly does not provide a mechanism for a justice to make that determination, right? It says nothing about, okay, if you're going to implement the rule of necessity, it may overcome your duty to recuse, but when? (laughs) And under what circumstances? And how do you balance those two things? There's just not a word about that anywhere. And so I think that's really difficult for implementation and for assessing you know, future decisions that the court makes where this might be an issue. So this is not a fair question. I'll just say this off the bat. Um, But the code also talks about how the justices should recuse when they, quote, know that they have a potential conflict. And the commentary talks about, you know, how the court gets thousands of petitions. They can't be expected to know the nitty gritty details of every party in every case. And it later says that the justices are going to be looking into whether they should consider enhancements to their conflicts checks process, including a system that's already in place in many of the lower courts. And I'm just, I'm wondering, if knowing is so important, why doesn't the court already have the best available means to identify these conflicts? Why is it that, you know, if if that's so important, then why not already have these systems in place? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question, and I suspect that it is partially due to the the sort of internal dynamics at the court in the sense that each justice really is responsible for his or her own decisions on this matter. And I think the justices really try to respect each other's um, decisions and not to sort of second guess each other's choices on these things or their interpretations of their legal obligations. And so I think that leads to sort of an environment where it can be hard to speak up about, hey, I really need more, you know, I need a better system. I'm worried about this, this situation. I think it is hard to sort of in those kinds of circumstances for justices to say, I want a better way to do this because it's an indication that maybe the current way is not working, which is a problem. And so I suspect that there's something of that that has caused the court to to not be adopting necessarily these measures, because in order to do so, you have to acknowledge that it's necessary. <laughs> um, and that's not always the easiest thing to do. Yeah, definitely. Uh- Let's talk about the section on extrajudicial activities for a minute, you know, because this seems to be where a lot of the criticism is coming from. So I'm just curious, how does the code respond to the reporting that's been done about the justices' friendships with uh, these partisan activists? I think the code tries to describe a universe in which those kinds of relationships are merely an appearance problem (laughs) and not an actual problem. And so it focuses on how to manage, I think, the appearance problem that those things cause by focusing on 
transparency, disclosures, you know, those kinds of things, as opposed to acknowledging that those kinds of relationships can cause a substantive problem and should be responded to accordingly. Hmm. Lydia and I chatted about this a little bit at the top of the episode, but the code has no enforcement mechanism, even though lower court judges are subject to a judicial conduct and disability process. Can you spell out some of the separation of powers concerns that we've heard from some of the justices on this issue? Yes, I think the fundamental difference that most of the justices would say exists between them and other judges who are subject to the kinds of processes that you're talking about are that they are at the top of a co-equal branch of government with other, the other branches of government. And so there is a unique threat to the independence of that branch of government if another branch is able to step in and take action against them in what they consider to be sort of an interfering kind of way. And that that is actually a threat to the overall power of the judicial branch and therefore a problem for sort of the constitutional balance of powers that our system essentially is built upon and relies on. So I think that's the best way I can articulate the um, the arguments that they are making. I guess I would say to that, too bad. <laughs> um, not too bad, but um, but really I think it is fair to, to take that into account, but it is also something that, you know, the president is subject to ethics requirements, right? I mean, different ethics requirements than other executive branch officials for sure, but, but some. And certainly also when you look at the structure of the Constitution in general, you really see that Congress has a lot of responsibility and authority in setting up the courts as they exist. And so to say that Congress has absolutely no no role to play there, which is essentially what Justice Alito has said, um, I think is inconsistent with the design of the Constitution overall. And it's not a practical way to run, um, you know, ethics for a powerful, for powerful people. <laughs> yeah, I think um, both Congress and the executive would be interested to hear that one branch of government cannot tell another what to do, because of course, the court does that all the time with the other branches. Yeah, I'm, I'm also wondering um, if you could tell us kind of what the reception to this code has been. Like, is everybody like, woo, finally, and and we're done, and thank God. And is it like this, you know, relief? Um, No, I would not say I'm hearing that. <laughs> um, no, I think what I would say is this. I think people, I, I think in general, feel good about the fact that the court is hearing them, that the objections that people are raising, the concerns that people are raising, I think it is good that the court is responding to them. And I think it is an indication to all of us who care about this, that it is worth our spending our time and energy thinking about this and raising concerns when we have them and, you know, drawing people's attention to the situation because this is currently one of the only ways that we have to, you know, to make an impact on these, these kinds of issues. So, um, so I think that, you know, one, that is one reaction. And the other reaction is that it seems that while the court has heard us and the public, when it raises its concerns about this, it does not seem like they have 
quite understood what those concerns are, or at least accepted as a group what um, what the legitimacy of those concerns are. Because, you know, as I said, you know, you all talked about the sort of introductory language being very clear that they feel that they're that they are not doing anything new here. And, you know, I, I don't think the reason that folks were raising concerns about this was that they didn't think the justices felt that they were bound by any rules. You know, I don't think anybody's out there thinking this is really concerning because I'm not sure that Justice X really believes that they are bound by any rules. I'm not sure that that's the thing that gets people exorcised, right? I think it is like, look at the way these people are behaving. Um, Whatever rules they may or may not be bound by or whatever rules they may or may not feel that they are bound by, those rules are obviously not producing the outcome that we think is appropriate um, for, you know, the the justices in the highest court of the land. (laughs) Well, sounds like this has been very successful. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Kimberly, I thought Jennifer had a lot of interesting things to say here, uh, you know, about this code, about its lack of enforcement, uh, about the rule of necessity and, you know, when the justices should be recusing and, um, what do you think about what she had to say? Yeah, I thought it was uh, really good. I liked the the way that she explained the rule of necessity, which I prefer to call the duty to sit because, come on, that's a better name for it. Fair. Um, you know, and made it pretty clear that, yeah, this is this is a concern that is valid, but maybe not as big of a deal as as they make it seem. We're going to take a break here at Cases and Controversies to celebrate with our families and friends for the Thanksgiving holiday. We'll be back December 1st with our new episode. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Happy Thanksgiving! Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government Newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.